All right, welcome back to the Davis Fitness Method podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Davis, and today with me is Coach Tris. You know our lovely Coach Tris. We've done a few episodes together. Uh, we're going to do another Q&A. Uh, I think Tris came with some questions, and we have um, some questions from clients, so we'll try to cover as much as we can here today. Uh, but without further ado, Tris. Uh, this this first question, I think we talked about on Monday, and we talked about with David, the it was the benefits in flexing the foot towards the shin, that otherwise known mm-hmm. as dorsiflexion, yep. during a leg curl. It wasn't specific, and there was a study reference, I can read it, but what, in your experience, what what is it useful for context, of course? Uh, it's uh, it's going to help to stabilize the knee joint just generally because when the calf is, like, so when the toy, like, when the toe is pointed, the calf is flexed. It's going to be in a shorter um, or what would be weaker position, um, making it less likely to help support in that position for that leg curl. The same would be true for leg extension. It's just going to aid in stability of that knee. Um, just the fact that it does pass the backside of that knee joint. Um, added benefits are going to be strength. Your output's going to be higher there versus if you're trying to disadvantage um, the calf in some way um, and then just try to put more tension onto the hamstring. Some might argue that having my toe pointed might just increase the demand from the hamstring. Mm. Um, But if you increase the demand from the hamstring in its need for stability of that knee joint while you're curling it, um, it'd be like if you're doing a split squat and you're unstable in that position well instead of driving more output on the tissues you have to do more work to try to stabilize that the hip or the knee um, or the foot in that position so um, you basically just want you want the calf stretched or um, not or you, you want the calf stretched so that it can help support the knee Okay. Not necessarily like that it would be a bad thing for this other thing to happen. It's just like there's not a there's not enough advantages to pointing the toe and and you're you have more athletic carryover from practicing being in a dorsiflex position. So like if we were like a lot of people get shin splints from running because they're they have this passive foot that like hits the ground right. versus this active um legs hacked yep. then transferring it. Okay. Uh, and this this doesn't matter if, if somebody's on a seated or lying leg curl. Right. No. Okay. No. Because I don't think they reference. They didn't reference any type of um, either one of that study, which I think was done in. I don't think there's going to be. A, there's not going to be a difference in uh, the calf's involvement with varying degrees of hip extension. This this leads me to another point of the leg curl, which I think is important to point is when we do a leg curl, and it's kind of funny because sometimes. Sometimes depending where we go, like the Spring City Fit, the design of a leg curl, they have like an almost an incline. And well, that you're talking seat, about like the, the seated, like a seated one, a seated leg seated curl. One? Yeah. Okay. And so um, for us, like we try to get these the rib cage down, starting down, low back pulled against. Can you explain why that's so important when somebody's trying to establish tension on the hamstring during a leg curl? Um, so how far the thigh pad or the back pad would be? is just going to be like the relative hip extension. So like if the pad is further back 
but I'm trying to keep a neutral rib cage. I could be on a further back pad and still keep a neutral rib cage, but now I'm in a greater amount of hip extension, which is going to be a weaker position. Whereas like a seat that's more upright is I'm going to be able to better keep a neutral or stacked rib cage because I'm more vertically aligned versus reclined. So the difference in the chair is, okay, one's more upright and more one's more reclined. Um, so the difference there is like not how it's, you're still going to keep a stop rig cage in either position. So the angle wouldn't matter. Your orientation is still stacked. So right. if my pelvis was, if I'm reclined and my pelvis is forward, yep. that's problematic, but you don't have to sit and have the pelvis forward. You can rock the pelvis back. Right. So, um, the reason that that's important is it's, um, your, so without getting like crazy into the weeds on pelvic floor and diaphragm, you're going to be able to keep a better brace and rely less on structure with um, a neutral rib cage position. So you have more integrity from your core. So it's basically your core is in a stronger position, which can keep the pelvis in a good position, which if the pelvis is like not like if your, your diaphragm and your um, pelvic floor aren't aligned, you're less likely to keep the pelvis in a, in a neutral position, meaning then that the pelvis is more likely to mutate and counter mutate or move forward and move backward, right. which would then mean that the hamstrings aren't getting tension. So it's like you have a rope and um, if you've, you have a rope attached to your pelvis and you have a rope attached to the backside of your knee and that's your hamstring, the hamstring should be pulling shorter or closer to the pelvis. But if the pelvis is rocking forward and backward as you're going through those positions, it's kind of like you're not able to get it into a shorter position and you're not able to get it into a, a greater length. It kind of like travels back and forth in this mid-range, just kind of holding isometric tension. It's all like you had a mechanical disadvantage at that point. I mean, the and so for us, we had like for ours, it's very upright. So we look at the indication of pulling your, your pelvis back, keeping it neutral because like we look for like a no gap. And yeah. the low back, can you say the same thing for the incline as well? Does that, you can kind of see the pelvis line up with the ribcage, sure. Yeah. But like, I guess it gets depends on the person. You would just have less support from that chair. If it's like, if you, let's say you are back, it's going to be harder to keep co full contact with your back in that pad. If it's, uh, reclined, um, without like losing something somewhere, there's going to be some gaps, but you could still opt for a neutral ribcage position on an incline right. chair. Um, but like your back isn't going to be fully against that if you're like pulled down a little bit. Um, so like the, your low back might be on this bench, whereas your upper back, your upper back might be on a reclined. Right. Do you see the manufacturers actually have that in mind when they make no. these designs? I don't, I feel like they don't. I, I feel like, I feel like the, the, I feel like the manufacturers who make certain machines, certain ones really have a understanding of my, biomechanics and then there's most of the machines and it's like a lot of them don't want your welders so like some of them yeah some of them like they get the physics of like a certain movement like oh we would want it hard here and not hard here and so it has like this resistance profile that um the weight starts off easier it gets heavier as you get into a stronger position and then it drops off towards the end great that um those ones are like we know and love those are the machines that are always busy at the gym because people like use them and they feel them and they're like, these feel good. Yeah. And then there's ones that it's like, uh, what's 
hey, this one's this machine's really hard. And it's like, yeah, like something's probably off here. Um, or it's like difficult in, in a position where we would be weaker. And then it's like, oh, wow, this is really hard. So some people might like that. Um, probably more advanced lifters because they like are obsessed with this heavy squeeze position. Yeah. But um, like it wouldn't be a position where you feel like you're getting strong at. So, okay, cool. So the, the next question that we have. We, you and I talked about, I think it was last Thursday, and we talked about the Talus for a moment, and we had recommended somebody to a Cairo, kind of get that adjusted. Yeah. So it, it got me thinking, when in your experience, what the thir- was it 13 years now? Yeah. When have you ever found it appropriate to refer someone to a Cairo? What was happening? Do you have examples? What were you looking to get out of that? Specific. Yeah. Referral? Yeah. Um. T- I would say there's like, there's not a lot of instances where I've been like, oh, you should go see a Cairo for this. Um, I'd say we're definitely going to want, like, Cairos are going to want to adjust things that are related mostly to, like, the bones specifically. So I wouldn't be necessarily going to a Cairo if it was like, oh, my upper back's tight. Like, because them cracking it or adjusting or something could, could prospectively from a structural standpoint, create space. So like if I am constantly in this uh, posture where my back's pinched up really tight and, um, and a Cairo found a way to increase the amount of flexion, um, I would say that that's not likely to be derived from an adjustment for the most part. I don't think somebody's so compressed, like their backside is so compressed based on some structural limitation, but more how they're training, how they're moving in a day to day. So like in that instance, it might, they might better, um, they might have a better time with someone like a physical therapist or a massage therapist. Um, but like the talus, um, even if a physio could probably do that too, there's really, there's probably few moments where I'm like, okay, Cairo, like this one, Cairo for sure. Looks like it was like something stuck clicking joint wise. Um, and it's not that a, a certain PTs might not have the skill set or um, the background orthopedically to like do it just yeah yeah so like that's when I would probably be like okay Cairo the yeah. ta- like the talus is like sure we can find maybe a manual therapist or a sports therapist that could do that um, but it's like well if we get the right Cairo it's probably going to be like this is pretty straightforward yeah cool okay yeah and I I. Uh... For those that don't know, the talus is just, just this bone in the front of the ankle. So we had somebody, what's he doing? Leg curl? Leg press? Like calf raises. Calf raises. Yeah. And it just felt stuck. Yeah, when he would get to the bottom of the movement, basically when his toe is coming closer to his face, mm. um, you start to get like this sort of jamming sensation. Yep. Um, like somebody might refer to it as like pinching or something like that. Um, and I wouldn't say like every time something pinches, you need to see a chiro. Like if you're at the front of your hip is pinching when you're squatting, it's not likely the hip is impinged and needs a adjustment. It's like, we need to train you how to move properly so that yeah. you don't create reliance on that position or like, uh, you don't create this anterior, like you don't create a pinching moment. Mm-hmm. Like it's like something needs to be rocked back that is rocking forward yeah. when you're getting into the bottom of the squat. And it's like, you probably just set that squat up pro- improperly. We need to learn how to do that instead yeah. of going to a Cairo and trying to have them adjust something. And it, like, my thing is, is I'm not 
anti Cairo. Um, and there are definitely there's going to be utility for uh, them, but there's also like knowing when that is, and then also it's it's kind of hard to identify if you don't have like a good network of coaches um, or like sorry of clinicians because you're like what is what is a good Cairo? And you go in same with PTs like it's worse for PTs they're or physical or, or personal trainers personal trainers largely if you're going to look for somebody you're going to be like how do i find a good one yeah it's and if you're like somebody just like out there looking you're like i don't know like this they seem to have some good reviews and then you get in there and it's like well maybe it was good for these people but it's not good for me or what whatever um you can get same thing can happen at a Cairo. It's like where somebody might have net had what felt like a positive experience, but then like you go in and this person is like, Oh, you have an upslip of your pelvis. And it's like, mm, if you have an upslip of your pelvis, you're probably the last person I want to see. I should probably be on a, a table for surgery. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they're saying things that aren't necessarily happening. And it's like, and language is important. So they might have said something, but it's like the ups, like the word that they use to, to define something like an upslip. Maybe they meant like you have one hip that's hiked. So like language is important because like if your pelvis on one side did actually slip up, there's an incongruence there. You have like, yeah. I think it's good to just ask if you have to, if you are going to Cairo for whatever reason, just get more information from them. If they say something and it seems very superficial of what it is you actually want to know, just ask more questions. If you can't, I feel like for me, if I, I just look feel further, like most people don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I think it's hard to be discerning. Yeah, it's true. For us as coaches, I think we, we have a better idea. Yeah, I think can... our advantage is just knowing what's going on in the body a lot more. Whereas like, I don't know, like if I were to send my client, I'm not going to be like, hey, here's like 25 questions I want you to ask. Not everybody's going to be armed with those 25 questions. Um, so like in, to some degree, it's like, yeah, you do have to trust a good review. Like look at how often this person is recertifying. Um, maybe, maybe if you have the time, because like people are short on time too. It's like, maybe look up those certs. Yeah. Like, are they any good? What are other people saying about them online? Uh, do they exist? Yeah. Do they exist? That would be a good one. Like, okay. Cool. So uh, this one was, actually this one was asked today. So kind of a, it, I know this really largely depends on the person and how how much intensity they have in their training and just what, what, that, what else is going on in their life. But best tips when sore, but you're coming into lift, how can we best negate that soreness in order to increase our performance for that day? Are we training the same muscle? Uh, yeah. So let's, let's assume that we are, let's assume that we're doing a second full body workout of the week. Okay. And maybe we have a couple different patterns. Yeah. Right. Not as much knee flexion, a little bit more hip hinge or just different versions of it, how would you approach it? I would say that for most for most people, if we had the adequate amount of time between sessions, you're likely recovered before your soreness goes away. Yeah. So I would probably be just generally less concerned about the actual level of soreness. Um, I get that it's, like, uncomfortable. Um, so getting into those positions where they are stretched under load um, is not going to feel fun at first and squeezing it's not going to feel fun at first so maybe 
spend a little bit more time in those ramp up sets. So instead of just jumping right in where you normally do, have a warm up or two, um, kind of get more of the blood flow going in there. So I'd probably say higher repetition warm ups. Whereas like a lot of times people won't do high rep warm ups if they're you know going heavy that day. So they're gonna go like. Oh, okay, like I know I'm gonna go heavy, so I'm gonna practice three and fours or twos and ones and just see how things are feeling that day. Obviously, like if you feel like you need more time in that position to kind of desensitize that or get some blood flow going, do that. But aside from that, like once the weights start getting heavier again, I don't feel like you're gonna feel as much of the soreness as you're going through an exercise. So I would actually encourage you to load it um, because if you're like, babying it you're probably more likely to feel it versus if we challenge it again you're probably less you're more likely to introduce a new level of soreness the next go around but you're not necessarily likely to be like like dipping your your toe into like a cold ice bath or something like that so it's like yeah sure warm up get back into it but you're not likely to that certain that soreness isn't an indicator that you're about to hurt yourself if you do this thing it just didn't feel good yeah. So if you can get around that, like whatever allows you to get around that foam roll, thera- like Theragun, you know, do whatever you want to do, some mobility flow. It doesn't matter so long as you end up getting to the point where you can train hard. Cool. I, why would you choose a like a lacrosse ball or foam roller in certain areas when you're trying to desensitize something versus like a massage gun? What do you think is the pros and cons there? Uh, so technically there's like we have different mechano sensors so um ones that are receptive to skin stretch there are ones that are uh, light pressure ones that are deep pressure and ones that are vibration and temperature um so they they all communicate to the brain at a certain frequency and so depending on the pain the pain uh pain communicates to the brain at a certain frequency whatever can break that up is likely to um have an effect positively on what you would perceive as you know pain in that area um so why would you use vibration or and, and i would say that some people some some people you have to know like some pe- people the moment they get like some deep pressure like ah that's too much for them whereas like somebody you give them a little bit of vibration and then they're like oh that's nice where some people are the opposite they'd rather have something sit on them and just be like right in that one spot because they're like okay once it's there i can like breathe it's like getting into a cold ice bath and you just like once they're there but like vibration is just like this never-ending like and they're like like it hurt it hurts so like i think it's just kind of knowing um like like people who are sore probably would tend to lean towards like the sitting on it holding versus vibrating on the thing that's sore like theragunning a sore hamstring it's like Versus like sitting on a foam roller, finding a tough spot and you're like, okay, I can deal with this. But like somebody maybe who has a knot, it could go either way. Like, or quote unquote knot. Maybe you have people that, you know, just hit me with the boomstick. Yeah. I like Yeah. That. Yeah. Of course you just <laughs> right in my cap. Got yeah. it. Lovely. Uh, cool. Okay. Yeah. I was always curious about that. Just, you know, from your perspective. Uh, yeah. I think it, yeah, it's just, it varies from person to person. Like we can just say this, but like, I would say like if somebody were to try to out on themselves it's like well what feels better that day yeah and then you might be able to come to some sort of scenario where it's like oh every time i'm sore like i want the foam roller now obviously like something that's like the 
the smaller and more dense the object, or just generally the more dense the object, the more likely it is to create deep pressure versus like light or diffuse pressure. So like if I've got a styrofoam foam roller, it's like, yeah, sure. I put my leg on it. Depending on the density of that foam roller, well, a, there will be a different level of pressure in my legs, even though like I put my whole body weight on it versus if I were rolling over like a, a steel rod. Like if it was a narrow steel rod, that thing's getting super deep. Just like if you were to roll on a marble versus a lacrosse ball, like which one's getting deeper, which one's more penetrating. It's like the marble would fucking suck. The lacrosse ball sucks enough, gets deep enough. There's enough pressure there, uh, but it depends, like it would depend, right? Like how deep do we need? How deep do we need? Um, and like how much pressure do we need? And that's going to vary from person to person. And like, I remember one time, like I saw this lady, she'll like lacrosse ball, like her hips. I was like, I do that, at least with the level of tension that I had at the time. And I was like, if I do that, I feel like I'm going to saw my hip off. But like, it's like, okay, I'm going to stick with the foam roller for now. Maybe I'll work up to a, like a lacrosse ball at some point. But if they need to. Yeah. Right. I mean, they, they may yeah, never. You might not. You might not need it at all. Yeah. I don't think it's something that we necessarily need to progress. We are not trying to, we're not trying to work our way up to marbles, right? Like, yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. If that, if whatever model you're using is that, it helps you get decent size and you can work out, you're good. Yeah. Um, the last question I have right now, and then we'll, I'm sure we'll come up with more. Uh, we talked about this morning, was the pre-workout nutrition. So is it important and do we need to eat before training? The example we had talked about was like in the morning, having something small coming in. I think you and I have kind of, we're kind of on the same page with that. Um, well, what's your take on it? How have you kind of addressed it before with clients yeah. or in general? So like I've even had some people go as far as to say that uh, if they have anything in the morning, they'll feel nauseous. Like they just can't eat before they come. I was like, okay, you know, we'll do as much as we can without it. And so my general recommendation would be you should have something, be it liquid or solid, before coming into the gym. Now, um, I would recommend something that is a bit more carbohydrate heavy um, before coming. Not a heavy meal, but I would just say that there is more carbs than there are fats uh, or protein at that meal. Okay. And um, now most now most people that wake up to come here at 6 a.m. aren't waking up at 4 to have a full meal to then get here by 6. They're waking up at 5.30 to get here by six. So like if they get anything, it's like probably in liquid form on their way. Like they're driving and drinking it on their way here. Or yeah. Maybe they did it right as they're going out the door or something. Or like, what do you think that would be? I mean, I guess it depends on, it really depends on the person, but why? Uh, no, what, what do you think that would be? Like what would that, uh, what would that liquid yeah. be? Um, so like, you know, some people I'd be like, for some of the guys, like I'll tell them like that are maybe have a slightly, higher interest in like supplementation or what would be deemed supplementation mm -hmm. is like just a carbohydrate beverage during their workout, which is better than not having anything pre, like as long as they have something as we're going through the workout yeah. to help sustain some level of their blood sugar, that's going to aid performance. Some people it's like they have like a, a, a glass of juice and maybe they chew up a protein bar on their way here. Okay. Um, some people um, I've, I've had people that were like, they did like quick oatmeal packet or something like that. Uh, some people buy apple, banana, something, something that's going to be a little bit 
like have some level of sustenance um but um yeah i don't like for a lot of them it's like what they have at the house and it's like what you can get before you come it's not like straight up peanut butter uh it's like well that's probably not going to do a lot for our workout but yeah. that would still probably be better than nothing it all ultimately as long as we're getting adequate carbs proteins fats throughout the day it all kind of comes out in the wash like when we have things like maybe there's like small downside to having higher levels of fat pre and post workout but it ultimately is going to probably come out in the wash so long as we're hitting our our macros properly but i would say from a performance standpoint carbohydrates are going to be more important yeah so like a bagel with something on it and would you say and I, again i think we both agree on this having those carbohydrates pre and post yeah right the benefits there for sure Right, or what have, you, what have you discussed before with that? Um, so, yeah, so a lot of that, like, that's where I would probably, so, like, if I were going to put carbohydrates in three places, it'd probably be uh, pre-workout, post-workout, and before bed. Cool. Those would probably be my most important places. Not that, uh, and I would say it's more important to have it before bed during phases where we're dieting. So, like, a lot of my clients are coming for fat loss, and, like, they might have times of the day where they or having less carbohydrates. Yeah. I don't want them to not have none before they go to bed just because we know that it would have a basically therapeutic effect on cortisol to have carbohydrates before you go to bed. High cortisol before bed is likely going to mean shit sleep. Yeah. So if we can have lower levels of cortisol before going to bed, we're likely yep. to have better sleep, which then means better recovery, which then means better training. Yeah. And that brings up my next question. And this is this is cool totally just random i'm not sure that i fully answered the last one but oh okay. yeah so like just because like so do you have to have pre-workout stuff so like i think her question was like do you have to have it How the answer is like no you don't have to have it um now what level you'll be able to sustain a a great level of intensity throughout the entire session is probably going to be limited by your ability to maintain those blood sugar levels, especially given the fact that we're probably type ta- like tapping into glycogen stores yep. um, and circulating blood glucose. So it's like, that's probably going to drop off as we're getting towards the end of the workout. And like, I'm going to imagine that sometimes that's the thing where we're driving towards a more externally supported um, high output exercise. You're probably not going to have it there, even though you're not going to pass out. Um, you might, you may, you could, Tris has, but, <laughs> um, I would say like, it would probably be better in the, from a long-term performance standpoint to be getting something around like before that workout. Great. Awesome. Okay. And then what was the, well, I mean, besides the question that I re- thought of randomly, I'm, I'm going to just ignore it for now. Maybe next podcast, the, the post training, we've talked about that. Yeah. And I think it basically revolved around uh helping with muscle retention, uh post workout yeah. carbohydrate intake, higher duration there, uh, or higher amounts there. Yes, no, what can we talk about that? Yeah. Uh, I would say I would say it's like it's important from the standpoint of like especially if we're like looking at uh so you have you have pathways for um basically like what's going to help um upregulate like mTOR um, and then like this is basically going to help the rebuilding process Mm -hmm. and the sooner that we can get into that 
the better um, versus like your body constantly trying to like break things down. I'm not saying like if you didn't eat at all, like in an hour or so that, okay, you're negating your workout, but um, you do want to get into the point where we're like starting to change the chemistry so that we are now more in line with what would help to build muscle tissue. Yep. So the sooner that we can do that, um, carbohydrates are a great way to do that. So like, that's why they're going to be important post-workout. Can you still build muscle on keto or something like that? I think some of the studies suggest that you can. So does it matter that it's carbohydrates? No, but I would say that in most sports, it's it seems to be that athletes who consume carbohydrates or higher levels of carbohydrates can sustain high levels of performance for longer than like a ketogenic athlete. So um, I'm going to say that it, it's more important for you to get those carbohydrates. A lot of people have um, sensitivity or aversion to the idea of consuming carbohydrates because they feel like they're going to make you fat. And it's not the overconsumption of um, any specific macronutrient. It's, well, I guess it is the overconsumption. It's it's not the consumption of one specific carb, protein, or fat that makes you fat. It is the overconsumption of calories as a whole beyond your energy needs. So if my body is only burning a certain amount of calories, if I'm eating more than that, I'm going to gain weight. And now if we're in the, if we're strength training, we might anticipate some weight gain because we might be putting on some muscle. Um, and now the rate of weight gain, um, if I'm not stimulating that much muscle because I'm not training that hard and then I'm eating at a rate where I gain a pound, a pound a week. Yeah. Well, then, yeah, I can expect to be putting on more body fat. But if I train really hard and I'm eating at the rate of I put on a half pound or a quarter pound a week, then I can expect more of that to be muscle tissue and less of that to be fat tissue. So it's not it's not that you're having too much carbs or you're having too much fat or you're having too much protein. It's that your health, how much you're having, when you're having it and at what frequency. Um so like, I would just say like, for most people, it's like, they have no idea. The awareness just simply isn't there. Like how much they're consuming. Yeah. And so it's like, well, then it's going to be, then yeah, sure. Like if you cut out carbs completely, yeah, it's going to be easier to do. But if we, if you wanted something that you could sustain and you just wanted to have a better idea of what balance would look like, then, then you just need to know, well, how much am, am I consuming? And where is my weight? Like some people are just so sensitive to their weight too. So it's like, yeah, I don't want to get on a scale because the scale means this. And the scale doesn't mean that. No. The, the scale is a number. And then you've associated a value to that number. Right. So, but if you wanted to use it as a metric from, am I getting too fat? Well, sure, you can measure inches. There's other things you could do. You could look at yourself in the mirror. You can look at pant sizes. You can do whatever uh, makes you happy. But like, if you could just look at the scale as simply a metric and just remove it, become a bit more binary about it, uh, and just be like, yo, I am gaining weight pretty fast. That might mean I need to make some adjustments to my diet so that it slows down. Or um, the same would be true in the opposite degre- uh, direction. We wouldn't want you losing weight too fast because you could lose muscle tissue. And we want to spare that. So it's like, well, slower weight loss is better in that case. 
So um, I know that wasn't your initial question, but it's just kind of like yeah, no, perfect. I, love that. I would I would point to yeah. No, actually, that was that was my last question. Um, but I don't have anything else unless we unless you had something that you came up yourself or um, I did. So like um, I did have somebody ask um, about like body recomposition. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were like, can you do it? And it's like, it's more likely, like, from what we know, it's much more likely for it to happen with a beginner client. So if they did no, if they made no changes to their diet and um, let's say they were at weight maintenance, so they're not eating any surplus and they were to begin training, um, their body would now learn to use more of the nutrients that are coming into the body to help support growth of muscle tissue. And then we're likely to see more turns turnovers of body fat. So when you first start training, we can experience body recomposition that now that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be like other world, like these crazy 90 day transformations, but it's like, yeah, if you didn't change much, you can see some changes. Now, are there things that you can do that would better support muscle growth during that period? Yes. And um, would they be to your advantage? Likely. So like some people, when they're like, they start out, like I think the typical is like younger males, maybe who are like what would be deemed skinny fat. And they're like, what do I do? Do I bulk or do I cut? And it's like, okay, for that person, um, we might have them in what would be a net deficit, but because they have some stored energy on their body, they might still be able to put on some muscle tissue while in that deficit. Not a great amount, but I would say you want them to be at a healthy body fat percentage first before trying to add more body weight or like more muscle mass. Because putting you, like if you're already at 30% body fat, putting more weight on you and then adding to that body fat percentage is not necessarily going to be conducive to health or any pathways that are going to help to facilitate facilitate growth. Right. So for that person, it's like, I probably tell you to, to cut a little bit and where some other people might be like, oh yeah, you just get a little bit b- bigger so that when you do cut down next time, you'll have more muscle and it'll be easier to cut. And I'd be like, no, like it's not, it's not going to be easier. Yeah. But, uh, so like, yeah, recomposition is possible. It's more likely to happen the younger your training age is. Um, as you become more advanced, there are some, um, they would say more phases where it's likely. Um, and I would say it's more during like an intermediate stage after you're uh, like, I think it's like post diet or something like that. You can notice like this, um, rebound in like muscle tissue or something like that. Uh, again, it's like, you're probably not going to take somebody who's super advanced and then build muscle and burn fat at the same time. That is not likely. And the longer you've been training, the less likely that has happened just because you have to do more of the things that would help to promote or stimulate growth in the first place. Yeah. So um, I, I, I would not advise as a pursuit for most people to try to sit at a weight maintenance and just recomp their body. Yeah. Now, unless they're like, I'm at a point where I'm like reasonably happy and I kind of want to stay around this size then I I would just, the goal wouldn't necessarily be recomposition. In that case, it's like, okay, let's try to see if we can improve performance at this weight. Yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily be like, hey, like we should be really expecting to heavily recomp here. Yeah. And 
And for those that I've had this conversation with plenty of people too, is is when somebody maintains their weight, they're not maintaining a specific digit most yeah. of the time. They're fluctuating probably between a five pound margin. Yep. And you go out, you have a good weekend, whatever, you come back, you may be a little bit above that. And then you'll kind of you'll come back to yeah. whatever that level was um over time. I think that's And that influx up and down can net lead to improvements in lean tissue and decreases in body fat. Yeah. So like being there for long enough, yeah, you'll likely go through some form of I am bigger and a bit leaner, but a dedicated time towards trying to actually intentionally put on muscle tissue because appreciable amounts of mus- muscle tissue do take time to build. So if we're not spending time in that phase, we can't expect to grow large amounts of muscle. It's like, oh, if I ate in a surplus for a week, like I'm eating over what I burn for a week. Yeah, we can't. The, you're not going to have noticeable gains in muscle mass in a week. Yeah, two weeks, mm-hmm. three weeks. Now, as soon as those things begin to stack up, like okay, like oh, I'm noticing some stuff. But like, you have to do it consistently. And it wasn't like you did it for one day that week. It's like you had to do it for seven days that week. Yeah. So, so, in your experience, when you've done recompositioning with somebody, and let's say that we've we've seen that kind of just happen because they just started training they're pretty fresh they have a really small training age a really young training age and you step into it with a set amount of macros and calories let's say that's been like or let's say somebody who weighs 180 pounds how high do you think they have gone or you've seen them go in protein um how do you dress fiber with them carbohydrate like do you find yourself going a little bit higher in certain macros than others and why, why is that? Do you have any examples you can give with that? Yeah, so I th- so a lot of the times when somebody, like if I have somebody who's coming in and we're not necessarily establishing a direction with their weight, like whether it be up or down, I'm probably not talking to them about their diet just yet. We might yeah. talk about certain behaviors, which for most people, like if I were to pick one behavior that I would affect, like that I would choose to then have the positive effect in either direction it would be protein because most people are under consuming protein and so i would say even for that person i don't go hey it's 180 grams of protein i go hey what are you eating right now and then it's like this and it's like well well, like there's barely any protein at any of these meals which one of these meals would be the easiest to get up to like maybe 30 grams first they're like probably dinner cool like let's do that for a week or two and once you've done that consistently then let's talk about lunch and breakfast snack or whatever um so like for me and at least what i've seen in people in in long-term change is instead of being like hey here's your meal plan eat this or eat this amount right out the gate it's like habitual and it's a smaller change and so like i i tell my clients a lot of the times it's like i so like my wife, I feel, is a great example. She probably hates the fact that I use her as an example. But, like, when I met her, she was, like, you know, she was a athlete in middle school and high school and um, in good shape, and she's got a slender build. But, like, by the time I met her, she'd probably been removed from any form of exercise for at least three years from high school. I think I met her. She was 21. Yeah. So... She's not exercising. She's still doing some of those things that she did as a high school athlete, like go to McDonald's, 
have whatever, like she ate their snack wrap or whatever, and Dr. Pepper, and then while she's playing Grand Theft Auto, she's eating Bunch Crunch and Dr. Pepper. And so, okay, fast forward. Uh, we're married at some point. And, uh, and she's wanting to affect change in her body. And in her mind, like, it's like, oh, you just eat salads. And then it's like, well, that sucked because, like, you could only do that for two days because then your body feels so deprived of everything. You just can't do it. It's like, for her, it's like she'd almost start itching, right? Like, she's just like, like, she's like, I can't do this anymore. Like, okay. So it's like, okay. So then it was like, then we start to have discussions because it's like, oh, she recognized, like, I know what I'm doing. So I'd make some suggestions. Like, I'm like, what if you just had something with a bit more protein here? Like, so she would begin to, make some of those changes and then, then out of her own natural curiosity, not me pushing her as a coach is like, she's like, Oh, well, like she'd ask me like, well, what are some ideas for what I could do for lunch? And then we talk about it and she'd be like, Oh, well I could do this. And then I'd be like, Oh, that's great. And then she'd do the same thing at dinner or she'd see what I was eating at dinner. And then she'd be like, well, I think I'm gonna do something like that too. And then she'd try it out and she'd be like, I like it. So like it was this gradual change over time in her diet versus being like, Yo, stop eating bunch crunch, eat like chicken and rice. It was like never any of that. So it was like everything. And, and a lot of the things that she ends up eating, like even now are not things that I eat, but, um, we have things that are like similar in terms of how we're setting it up. It's like, oh, there's something for protein. There's something for carbohydrates or something, but she has things that lend itself to her preferences. And I have things that lend themselves to mine. And then like lots of the times, she'll try something of mine and be like, oh, that's good. And then like try to do that on her own. Yeah. Whereas like um, I'm more trying to be like adhering to a certain like macro breakdown. Yeah. And um, so like I'm less likely to jump over to her things because hers are like they've got higher fat a lot of the time because that's what she would prefer. But, but that's net resulted in a long-term change for her. And it wasn't, yeah. and at first we weren't talking. We're just like start weightlifting. She starts doing that. And then, then it was like nutrition and then she started seeing some changes and then it was like, oh wow. Then she like really started to learn more about calories. And then it was like, okay, we start paying attention to calories and protein. And then it was like, oh, now a little like of carbon fat, less so like even to this day, like you don't have to get down. You don't have to get that granular. Then it's like, oh, maybe like fiber, fiber would help. Right. So it's like, I would say I go protein, protein is a habit Then it's calories and then, it, or, or or some form of understanding the awareness of how much you're consuming, yeah, portions, um, which will break itself down to calories at some point. Um, but then calories, and then from there, fiber. Now, f- like the fat and carbohydrate ratios, are there ones that would maybe uh, present as potentially more optimal? Sure. But I'd say that that's somebody that's a much more serious athlete um, than maybe just somebody who's generally trying to change their body. So, like, that's how I would look at that. Cool. Okay. Um, I don't think I have anything else to really go into that particular topic. Um, yeah, I don't. I can tell you the Yeah. Uh, unless, Max, you have one more thing. Do you have Otherwise, buddy. You guys find training partners. God, I can't do it. I can't. I can barely stand him. So let alone listen to anybody else. Uh, oh, thank you very much. That's so cute. Yeah.
Uh, gosh, I mean, I think if I'm going to look for somebody to train with, it's going to be just something I can vibe with. So I like Steven. I like hanging out with him. So we're going to work out together, if that's what you mean. Um, otherwise, like, it's very different. Working out with Yvonne is very different than working out with Steven. With Yvonne, I'm instructing, and I'm telling her what to do, and that's kind of, she, she likes it when I coach her most of the time. And then with Steven, he gets to coach me. I could see, like, different perspectives on his end, and then we both just give each other crap, um, yeah. which is always fun. I think it's kind of, yeah, I think mostly when I'm, like, working out with Tris, it's just that it's a good time to hang out with, like, Tris, and, like, even though he might not be trying to, like, actively coach me up, it might be, like, trying to push me sometimes, where it's, like, you get to this point in your own workout and like some people will just kind of like stand there like let you do your thing they jump in they jump out but like with Tris because he's a coach it's he has that like natural inclination to like want to be like come on man another one yeah uh, like a small brood time yeah. where like I'll notice something and ask you if you noticed it yeah and sometimes you don't right yeah um, and then like well you'll ask me yeah um th- there's there I've worked out with um Megan She's the uh, performance coach for the Sounders. And working out with her is interesting because it's like we might, like I might have this general lens of like what would probably be more biased towards like more like lend itself more towards bodybuilding, whereas she's going more purely athletic um, side of things. And kind of like her, I'm watching her do stuff. She's watching me do stuff. We're still looking at things for this lens of function. But um, it's just kind of interesting um, to be with somebody that's a little different um, in training style because it like I think for me it sharpens me as a coach because um, it's like okay like yeah these are you don't have to approach things just this way and like I with my clients it's like I'm often looking at things different ways for them because I'm thinking about their outcome whereas for me it's like there are a various number of outcomes or avenues or ways that I could approach something um, I don't, I'm not necessarily like oh I just want to I want to get better at running like that's not like the thing for me it's like I want to be very well rounded and so having a more round, well rounded approach as it is uh, as I look at who I'm working with makes things um, interesting so like I'm not like necessarily going to go like I'm going to work out with this guy and do like a mobility flow like maybe maybe like and maybe it's like I learned something to put in my warm up, but is that going to be the whole way I adapt my entire training style? It's like I'm just trying to pull something from somebody. So like I think that's probably the thing. But I think a lot of the times, like a lot of coaches end up without a training partner for a while because it's like you work out solo, you work out with what works with your schedule, and like you and I schedule like line up sometimes. But I would say like, um, or maybe he's going in a different direction with his training because he wants to focus on specific things that are a, a problem um, or like a, a point where he's looking to improve. And like, maybe I'm not. So like, I have less of that in my programming. So um, it would be kind of hard to find somebody who's like, okay, like we can do this thing together all the time, every Tuesday. So like, I would say it's probably not super likely to have a very consistent I've been training this person for two or three years. I don't think you see that very often in coaching. Yeah. But uh, uh, I think that's it for this one, you guys. If you have questions, send them in. Uh, you can uh, you can send me an email at steven at davisfitnessmethod.com or DM coach Tris, uh, coach.tris 
or uh, uh, or myself at the underscore Mister underscore Davis. Mister is M I S T E R, not Miss Mister. Like, yes. uh, but yeah, if you like the episode, like it, review the podcast, share it with your friends, tell your mother, sh- uh, maybe she'll enjoy it too. Um, or if there's just things that you want us to dive into a little bit more, um, if there are things where you'd like us to go a little less deep and more superficial, um, things that are like, oh, well, like, just, can you just like tell me yes or no? Should I do this? I like to explain the full thought process behind certain things. So if that's not your jam, I totally get it. I'll try to zoom back out and just be like big picture, focus on this. But for those that are a bit more interested in detail, we try to get a little, deliver a little bit more value there. So, um, yeah, just let me know what you guys are looking for. This podcast is still very young. Thank you, Trish, for being on. And uh, we'll catch you guys on the next one.